I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. widening our scope 
Um, so we started off super specific about super personal, and we are growing and growing and growing to, to widen our scope of what gratitude might look like. And so today, um, we're taking it to this, the societal level. Um, and when I was, um, so when I was a teacher, back when I was a teacher, I, I was once scolded for arranging the desks in my classroom in circles rather than in rows. The English department chair at this point in time, um, I didn't think she really liked me. Um, I, I didn't. I, I, maybe I could have done, I mean, I probably could have done nothing right, but she said, she came to my classroom and she said she was super worried that seating the students in a round would violate the order of the classroom, that it would compromise my um, classroom discipline. To, to sit, sit them in the round. And although rearranging desks seems kind of um, like a pretty small thing, though, uh, it's, it's actually not. Over the years, I learned from other teachers and other professors told me that, that they had similar run-ins like this with authorities. And friends in business have told me. They shared stories of switching the rectangular meeting tables and replacing it in their businesses with round ones and encountering intense opposition to that change. And woe betide any member of the clergy who dares suggest taking out rows of pews or rows of seats in a church and replacing them with church in the round or with round tables instead of rows. I know this because four and a half years ago when I showed up at Kingstown before many of you were here, uh, I sat down with a little remnant of people who were still a part of Kingstown. Um, I, I think Ben may be the only one here today. Yay, Ben! Um, I sat down with the little remnant and I asked them, what are the things that you love about this church that you've got to hang on to? And then I asked them, what are the things that you'd like to let go? And the thing I heard over and over again, we love that we take communion every week. We love every single week gathering around the table together. And then I heard, but I'm not really sure if worshiping around tables is working for us. Sounded like an interesting, um, a little, it's a little ironic. We love gathering around table together, but we would really like some rows in worship. Um, we like our rows. We like clear lines. We like leaders up front. We really like that. And because the rest of it just feels a little messy to us. And it seems that the social structures we inherit are often invisible to us. For many generations, right, the structure of Western culture, the structure of Western culture imprinted on our imaginations was that of rows, of lines, of pyramids. We were taught that everything was ordered social institutions, family, politics, by role and gender and race, everything is ordered in a pyramid. There are lines, there are ways that this thing must be ordered. And yet in the midst of that throughout history, in the midst of the, the, the pyramid in history, there have always been people questioning that order. There have always been people being injected into this story, questioning the order of the pyramid or the rows. In the United States, people from the margins or the bottom, um, mostly women 
or Native peoples or African Americans have criticized and challenged these assumptions of pyramids and rows. They envisioned and practiced different structures of social relations, typically based on, on greater mutuality and shared resources and an appreciation for diversity around a table together. And they generally talked about this in terms of circles instead of pyramids and lines. Which brings us to our scripture today. One of the first Bible stories I remember hearing and knowing and growing up on was the story of Zacchaeus. That very short little man who climbed up a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. I see some smiles and nods. You know it? Yeah. Did you know it before it was read today? Maybe? It is, it's a pretty popular one for children. Many a vacation Bible school has lifted up Zacchaeus as just one of those characters that children maybe can relate to more than other characters in the Bible. A fun little story to set to song, perhaps. And they did set it to song. You know the song? You know it? I'm going to try to sing it. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I know all of the tune, but I'm going to try. Um, it went something like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Oh, you're going to sing it with me. I love it. He, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. For I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. I just told you the whole story again, right there, in one little song. And I don't know how many times I heard that song, how many times I sang that song, how many times I heard it sung by a children's choir at some point in time. I think, I think there's hand movements to it as well, some combination that usually results in charming but like hilarious performances by very confused three-year-olds. Um, but in the telling of this story, the lyrics, if you notice, highlight Zacchaeus's stature. The fact that he was so wee, and he was little, he was short, and that's the reason why he climbed the tree, because he was just short. But the Gospel of Luke tells a completely different story. A story that is told the way I'm about to tell it, um, might not be all that palatable for children. Zacchaeus was a Jew, and the story tells us he was a chief tax collector and a wealthy man. Now, remember a couple weeks ago when I talked about the story of the rich young ruler? Remember the curious question we asked? How in the world would a Jew, under the oppression of Roman rule, how would they come to be rich? Very few Jews were rich. How could this be? The only way a Jewish man could have become rich under the oppression of Roman rule would be that he earned that position in society, his job as chief tax collector, by collaborating with Roman authorities, by being complicit in the oppression, in effect becoming a traitor to his very own people, 
in order to make money off of their backs. He has a job of prominence in society, a job that was quite lucrative in society, but his, his neighbors absolutely hate him. It turns out that this is not some sweet little song. <laughs> this is a deeply political story. It's actually this social critique. It's one of the most trenchant social critiques of Roman quid pro quo, tit for tat, patronage in the whole of the New Testament. Indeed, in this one little encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus reveals a conflict between the Roman system of gratitude and the beautiful alternative of thanksgiving that Jesus offers. The Roman system of gratitude worked like this. They would conquer new lands, they would expand their territory, and when they did, they would offer some political positions at auction to their new neighbors, the local inhabitants, and the tax collectors were the main agents of the patronage system. And it was a good job. While governors ensured that peace and prosperity flowed down from the emperor, tax collectors made sure that cash came up from the provinces to pay the military and enrich the noble classes in the imperial city. Tax collectors guaranteed that the empire worked and that its benefits reached those at the top. As the subjugated person, you would essentially buy your way into higher status in the Roman system by being a tax collector. You could get rich because you were allowed to take the skim uh, off the top as the money headed up to Rome. And Zacchaeus would have known how to play the game. He was quite literally a climber. Success meant to gain as much as allowed by the system, to go as high as he possibly could in the system, a lowly Jew, as high as he could go, and he made it. He was not a wee little man. He was a big man. He was chief tax collector of Jericho, it says. And so it should be no surprise that when Jesus, this rabbi who is healing people, who is stirring up crowds, comes to town, Zacchaeus would want to see him would want to figure this guy out. Was Jesus the promised Messiah who would send the Romans packing? That, that would have been bad for business, really bad for business. Maybe he worried that Jesus would inspire rebellion and encourage all the masses to, to, to resist paying their taxes. Whatever the case, the crowds were huge the day Jesus came to town and he couldn't see. And he needed to be aware of anything that could threaten his position. And so he did what he always did. He got ahead of everyone else by climbing up above them. This is the story about a guy who cuts in line, who cheats the test, who stuffs the ballot box in order to become class president. And when Jesus passes this tree, he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. And Jesus, who is able to read the hearts of people, he doesn't see a jolly little fellow up in a tree, the sing-songy fellow that we think from that song. He sees Zacchaeus, a, co a collaborator, and an agent of Roman overlords. And what does he say? He says, Zacchaeus, 
hurry up and come down. Come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus calls him down from the high place he has perched himself, down from his climbing, down from his ordering him himself to, um, to be over others, but now he must stand equal with Jesus on the ground. And then Jesus invites himself to dinner. And this makes the crowds very angry. They're shocked and they're angry. And Jesus, Jesus was this lower class person. Jesus was lower status. He was a good Jew. Lower status people don't invite their superiors to have a meal. The whole structure of society was based on elites doing favors for those beneath them to secure political loyalty, right? In normal circumstances, Zacchaeus should have invited Jesus to his home. And once Jesus accepted such an invite, accepted Zacchaeus' hospitality, then Jesus would now owe Zacchaeus his gratitude, an obligation to repay the favor that had been extended to him. But Jesus instead invites himself to dinner. Jesus instead undermines the whole gratitude business by inviting himself to Zacchaeus' home. Jesus offered the gifts of his presence to one who did not deserve it at all. This made Zacchaeus not a, a benefactor, but a beneficiary of a gift. Technically, Zacchaeus now owed Jesus something. And out of this sense of gratitude, Zacchaeus promises to give half of his wealth to the poor and to pay back all who he has defrauded, four times as much as he skimmed off the top. And this, this promise is utterly ridiculous. It, it's completely impossible to give back that much money, four times that much. Zacchaeus basically promised to bankrupt himself. In effect, he resigned his position. There was no way he could remain a tax collector. He got out of the tree, extricated himself from the Roman hierarchical structure of debt and duty. And at this moment, Jesus replies, today salvation, which is to say healing and wholeness, have come to your house finally. While, while Rome practiced gratitude in, in terms of a pyramid as a hierarchy of political and, and economic obligation of debt and duty, Jesus envisions it as this hospitality, this table, this circle of gift and response. And Jesus replaced the pyramid with a circle until it was so hard to tell now who the guest was and who the host was in this story. Jesus imagined a, a place where oppressor, tax collector, and, a, and the, the person who is oppressed, Jew, leave their stations on the pyramid and meet as friends, where, where forgiveness is practiced and gratitude expresses itself not as debt payment, but in passing on gifts to others. And at the end of this story, Jesus explains that he did this because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save, to deliver those ensnared in the punishment and privilege of gratitude, to set, to set them free from their patronage. And it's in that place he establishes a table 
a circle of hospitality. At this table, gifts pass without regard to paycheck or debt, and everyone sits at the table, and everyone eats at the table, and everyone contributes to the table, and everyone participates in life around the table. And in this, all are grateful, it says. Think for a second about how we depict this holiday of Thanksgiving. This one quickly approaching. People around a table eating a meal together. In the United States, it is this romanticized image of our most primal gratitude myth. It's a myth. That, that of Europeans and Native people sharing a table together. That did not happen. <laughs> Didn't happen that way. But that is what myths are. They are stories that express something we deeply desire, something that we hope will be, and how we dream of, of peace and happiness and joy around a table together. There is something in our hearts that loves Thanksgiving because there's something in our hearts that longs to banish the tit-for-tat, quid pro quo, pyramid, to banish it to the dusty history books forever and instead create a common table, a circle where we pass gifts to one another without regard of station or status, where boundaries dissolve around plenty. And Jesus calls that salvation. That's what he calls salvation. And we know this, and like Zacchaeus, many of us long for it. So you show up to a place like this. We just do not know how to come down from the tree. And so, let us participate today in this circle together. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. There is nothing you can offer back to me. Nothing. This cannot be repaid. I don't invite you to this table so that you'll invite me to yours later. I don't invite you to this table so you'll send me a thank you note for the wonderful meal we shared together. I don't invite you to this table so that you will honestly repent of your sins or seek to live at peace with one another and with God. I don't invite you to this table so that you will come and be a part of a community, so that you will join a common table, so that you will fill out a commitment card today. I don't invite you to this table expecting any of that in return, but I've invited you to this table because you are worthy to be invited. I call, you're beautiful, I love you, and that my grace is so big so radical that there's room for you. Same night he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. This is a cup for all the world. A cup that, that you cannot repay. <laughs> there is nothing that you can do. Nothing. You really know that? I don't know if we really know that. Um, we get faithfulness and gratitude to God all wrapped up in, in what we think we 
we've got to do to earn our place here to, to be good enough or worthy enough. This is a cup you, you can't give back. Take this and drink it and remember me. And so would you pray with me. God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us today as we receive these gifts. We call them gifts of bread and juice. God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us today so that our, our pyramids and our lines begin to fade away and we find ourselves encircled by your love and invited to your table. And we know that gratitude is gift and response. It's not tit for tat. And so today, God, as we respond with our hearts, with a card of commitment, we understand this not as if I fill this card out, I will receive more of your grace or I will be considered more faithful. I do not fill this card out with the, under, the opposite understanding that you have given us such a gift and that we now owe you, God, something. No, God, we, we fill this card out because we are so overwhelmed by your, your grace. We are so grateful for your grace in our lives, what you offer us, that it just naturally is an overflowing of that grace. We don't owe you anything, and you don't owe us anything, God but it just bubbles out, bubbles up out of that grace, a desire to be in community and to take part and responsibility in it. All honor and glory is yours, God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.